1: Welcome to this episode of LawPod, a weekly podcast produced by the students and staff at the School of Law, Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Rachel Dixon, and I will be your host for today. LawPod is a new initiative that seeks to open up legal research to a wider audience, provide legal perspectives and analysis of current affairs, and debunk some of the myths surrounding how we understand the law. Today we're going to jump right into interrogating this notion of a legal perspective on life and all that it entails and discuss whether in this super connected, information abundant era we live in, whether a legal perspective is necessary, useful or at all valuable. It's my pleasure to have here with me two guests um, to join me in this endeavour. First of all, Professor Phil Screeton and PhD candidate Ivanka Antova. Phil is now Emeritus Professor of Criminology in the School of Law. His research interests centre on the experiences of women and children in prison, deaths in custody, and youth justice. However, his career has become most associated perhaps with his work pursuing justice for the victims and families of the Hillsborough disaster. And we'll ask Phil to comment a bit on that in a few moments. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. And Ivanka's research takes a critical legal approach to the disability reform policies adopted by the coalition government between 2010 and 2015, and I'll ask her to comment on that too. So, Phil, if you want to tell us first a bit about your research and the motivations behind it, this is a chance for students who maybe and members of the public who maybe haven't come across your work yet to know what it's all about what is, and what it's all been working towards.
0: Well, when I finished university, I think it was... In, absolutely clear to me that I wanted to carry out research, but I wasn't sure precisely in what area. And it I, I fell into the work, actually, uh, in a demonstration in Liverpool, where we were trying to protect uh, gypsies and travellers who lived in the city from being evicted. And I think it raised the questions for me of legality, the mm-hmm. question of who has the right as a citizen, who has the right to live in our society and that really appealed to me and it kind of connected then as a young researcher as somebody who then went on to do his higher degrees around policing and regulation and so on uh, it, it kind of made me feel that research had to be relevant. It had to make a difference. It had to be something that was engaging, but also from my own personal perspective, it was about rights and it was about equality and it was about injustice. So that was the beginning of it. And I moved into policing, uh, researching policing, deaths uh, in, in police custody and then from there into prisons. And I taught in prison for mm-hmm. a while, as well as working as a researcher in prisons. And I saw the extreme situations that people in prison are left in. So it was those wider contexts about relevance, I think, mm-hmm. and about bringing a set of information to a wider public uh, to have, so that people could make a much more informed decision about the society in which we live. Because we, we we imprison people in our name. We police people in our name. They're our laws. So it's about us taking ownership, but we can only do that through knowledge.
1: Of course, using our money as well, right?
0: Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
1: All the tax you pay goes towards putting people in prison sometimes. It does. Yeah. I think a lot of that, um, what Phil has just said about... Um, rights and um, trying to open up conversations in society really resonates with me about what your research is about. So can you tell us just a little bit about what it is your work focuses on? Yes, absolutely.
2: There is there seems to be a pattern that um, certain academics follow, they become activists first, and then research follows from that. Um, I was a disability activist years ago, before I started the PhD, when I got interested in connecting um, academic discourses on human rights and the practice of having a disability and living in the context of a new liberal society, I was interested in exploring how um, these, these concepts relate to each other. Uh, My research is about the welfare reform policies adopted by the coalition government in the UK between 2010 and 2015 and I use the critical legal perspective Um, Namely the work of Michel Foucault on governmentality to produce emancipatory disability research. So these are the big academic buzzwords, but what it actually means in practice, and this is why I was very happy to be at the podcast, because we can debunk some of the myths about um, the very complex nature of academic research. In reality, the logic is simple the welfare reform impacts negatively, profoundly negatively, on the lives of disabled people in the UK. Um, There is a public understanding about Uh, the welfare reform and how it relates to the concept of law, to the concept of justice and to the concept of fairness that I think is often disconnected from the lived experience of um, disabled people who have been marginalized by austerity. So what I do as an academic as much as an activist is to contribute to emancipatory discussions by analyzing the welfare reform from perspectives which were perhaps a bit unexpected. Expected, for example, human rights. We all love human rights. We think human rights are great. We fight for their protection. We fight for their strengthening. But we don't necessarily take into account how the human rights language is often kidnapped by policymakers to justify punitive measures in relation to social security and how. Human rights in practice look for someone who has been punished for essentially having an impairment, not being a very productive member of society, perhaps, or being perceived as a burden to the rest of us. So this is what my research is about. It's about the knowledge on human rights and what power that contributes to the disability movement in terms of their emancipation.
1: So to pick up on that idea of emancipation then... Um, how do you see that and open this up to you as well, Phil? Because I'm sure there's an element of that in what you've been into. How do you see that happening and going from, produ- as you say, producing a PhD thesis, which is quite dense or quite in, you know technical and engaged, to then having an impact um and on the day to day lives of people. Does that happen? I mean, is there a crossover between? Do you see a a, a big crossover between academic work and you know the day-to-day lives of people affected by these policies and laws.
2: I'm I'm just going to be very brief on that because if there is an example of uh, an academic researcher whose work has impacted profoundly on the lives of people, that would be Professor Phil's Creighton. So, in terms, he won of the prize. My, he he did win the prize, and and many of us look up to him and uh, essentially follow following his in his. Um, in his foot we we, we think we're encouraged to think that academic research which yeah. um, satisfies the high standards of um, rigorous academic um, investigation can have a very um, practical very human impact on the lives that we of the people that we write about in terms of my work um I understand emancipation in many ways, but I think that the one that I would like to draw attention for the sake of the podcast is it's emancipatory to ask questions, to ask very profound questions about a situation or about the policy or about a piece of legislation that is presented to you um, and you're expected to accept at face value. Emancipation comes from uh, critically analyzing the um, in my case, welfare reform policies and their impact on rights. Emancipation comes from asking questions which are difficult to answer. They are political. They are not neutral. They're not scientifically objective. These are passionate human questions about how dare you call this fairness? How dare you call this justice? Is this what the law is about. Is this what human rights are about? How come my human rights as a disabled person are less valuable than the human rights of someone in a relatively speaking more privileged uh, position? So for my research, for my work as an activist as much as an academic, emancipation often starts with daring to ask questions which are not politically correct and they're not necessarily uh, easy to answer.
0: I think that uh, going on from that, van and thank you very much for your kind words. But going on 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 from that, I think that the driver for me is precisely that it's about asking the questions that um, people don't want to have asked, and that's about power. And to go back to your mention of Foucault, it's the relationship between power and knowledge, and how ideology in our society removes that capacity from us to think for ourselves or to think it's even appropriate to think of ourselves. I mean, what I would want to emphasize is uh, the view from below, as as opposed to the view from above. You know, history is always written by the victors, as the cliché says, uh, and it's the view from below, it's what it is like to be in that situation where you've been stripped of any access to rights, stripped of any access to uh, politics and to how you can change the world in which you live. But from my point of view, it's not that I would want to be the voice of the voiceless. It would be that I would want to secure the space in which the voices can be heard. You know, the people that I've worked with all through my life uh, uh, have a voice but it's just that their voice is not given any credibility. So doing re- rigorous research and representing um, the potential for that voice to be heard is absolutely crucial. So. What one crucial thing for me is, you know, if I'm going to write about prisons, I have to go inside prisons. I have to bear witness to what happens in prison. And I don't mean just as a, a visitor. I mean, actually embed myself in the prison to do the research. If I'm going to work with families bereaved in controversial circumstances, I need to get to know those families. I need to get to know the detail of those circumstances. That combines then documentary research and historical research with Face to face research, mm-hmm. so that you're you're working all the time to build up a picture of the reality uh, of those people's lives. That is so significant in our field. I mean, if we're talking about schools of law, schools of medicine, for example, we're almost um, we're almost infantilized. By going into a law school or going into a court or going into a doctor's surgery or a hospital because we don't have that knowledge about our own bodies, about our own rights, about our own selves. So from my point of view, it's to open that debate up and to ensure that people can make conscious and thought through um, choices about their worlds. I mean, if you look at the a lot of the movements and, and, and the, um, the groups that I've been involved with, like the Hillsborough Family Support Group, the only thing that unites all of those families is that they lost a loved one at Hillsborough. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of educational experiences, but they're all equally capable of being able to understand a process which, from the outset, not only infantilized them but ignored them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they are the experts in their own case. It's been my role to be part of a process that enables them to gain the knowledge and understanding uh, that can help them towards making conscious decisions and choices in what are very complex and difficult cases.
1: Absolutely. I am in terms of thinking about the idea of an expert then um you mentioned there they were coming becoming experts in their own cases Mm. and you're you know help empowering and helping them to do that Mm. that and giving choices and shining light on on different motivations and actors at work and whatever um the danger and the flip side of that is not in terms of research but in just in general about you know conversations on the law is that in today's society there's so much space on the internet or. You know, people can be, you know, they broadcast themselves in many different ways. And can, is there a danger that anybody can kind of tag on? Do we have to be the label of an expert? Do we have to be cautious with how we present ourselves as an expert? I can,
0: I'll be quick on that because I have a very strong opinion on the notion and concept of experts. I don't consider myself to be an expert in anything. What I consider to have is a whole set of relative expertise. Yeah. which I can bring into any given situation. That idea that we have is this figurehead of experts who knows everything about a particular topic. Yes, they have expertise, yes, they're knowledgeable, but from my point of view, with accessible language and accessible ways of understanding, people can share that expertise, can understand that and make conscious decisions for themselves our role as researchers, our role as, as, as people who inform the debate, uh, uh, for us to ha- help that expertise to be transferred, if you like, in an accessible way, the perfectly people are perfectly capable of understanding the dynamics of the world in which they live, as long as they have time, and as long as enough effort is put into making that knowledgeable knowledge accessible. So I debunk the notion of mm-hmm. expert. And that way, I get rid of the notion completely. I don't have to think about it. I just think about having knowledge and a knowledge base and applying it and sharing it. Uh, and that goes right into the whole process of teaching that's what we should be as university teachers we should be people who are sharing that knowledge not hiding it under a stone just for us to look at and use when we feel it's appropriate and I I, I, so that it's a big issue for me that notion of expert and it's one that I've spent most of my life trying to debunk
2: (laughs) Mm, I absolutely agree and um, the word expert, re- it relates to the concept of who has the power over yeah. knowledge and what kind of power does knowledge give them. Yeah. So in relation to disability, this is how I was introduced to um, critical disability studies and to the work of some of the earliest um, uh, disability activists who created the concept of the social model of disability uh, postulating that uh, disability is the result of societal oppression not so not uh, really the impairments um that someone may have so the reason why i'm mentioning this is because these early academic activists drew attention to precisely what you were uh just um talking about now Phil, uh disabled people being um looked under a microscope by academic yeah. experts yeah. Um, as a curious case study. Their lives investigated, torn apart, arranged in a particular way to suit the purposes of academia of this individual author. And nothing about that individual research was actually done to be part of their struggle for justice, fairness, inclusion, and independence. So one of the most... um important messages from these emancipatory disability researchers for me is disabled people are the experts when it comes to disability. Disability has been classified, has been controlled, has been arranged, investigated Undescribed by non disabled people, by the medical professor, profession, sorry, by uh, policy experts, by law experts. So, just like Phil, I completely um, dis- distance myself from the word expert. And my research is a tool, or at least I intended to be a tool that the experts themselves can use in their own emancipation. In the end of the day, we provide a set of questions, a set of perspectives. Here is something that perhaps you haven't thought about. How is that useful then to your fight for um, um, emancipation? This is how I see um, the the meaning of the word expert. In relation to uh, everybody being an expert, in particular, in relation to social media, perhaps it's a bit um, intense, but I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I welcome it because a lot of the discourse on disability and other issues that matter to me as a woman, as a migrant worker, Um, A lot of the struggles that people have are had in silence and in private. Mm -hmm. And these experts, these academic, medical, legal, political professionals hold the monopoly over the creation and dissemination of knowledge. Um, If you share your story on social media, for example, this is somehow delegitimized. It's not real knowledge. It's not real um, um, experience. I, I see it as, as, a, as an additional outlet for people to tell their own stories, write their own narratives. And um, in a way, I don't have I don't necessarily see a problem with everybody being an expert, possibly because I see it as a counterconduct to the um, definition, the strict, rigid definition of who's an expert in society. It's a spontaneous um, resistance to mm-hmm. Power, or it can be read as a spontaneous resistance to power. It's, if we have to be <laughs> very academic about it, you see, academia is powerful. I started backtracking and saying, "Oh, I better, <laughs> I better check myself."
0: It's <laughs> a good example because if you actually think about it, you know, when did this moment come when the media was apparently pristine and not and not and bias-free? You know, mm. you are suddenly reading the Daily Mail claiming that social media is somehow distorting the news, and you think, well, hang on, the Daily Mail's been doing that for <laughs> the last 40, 50 years, you know, I mean, and again, another it was a really interesting point about, um, Expert and disability, it reminded me of the, they built the Leeds Arena, and the first uh, event they were having at the Leeds Arena was the, I think it was the British Dis- disability games, mm-hmm. and when it came to people in wheelchairs getting access to the changing rooms, they couldn't get the their wheelchairs through. They had to knock a hole in the wall to gain to 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 gain access. This was a multi multi million pound building that had been built by experts, but nobody had thought to ask the very first people who are going to use it. If you want to use a shower and you happen to be disabled, how do you get into the thing? Yeah. You know, and that idea of of mm. of sharing knowledge mm. it is and sharing experience mm. is something that the liberation of education in Palo Freire talked about it years ago that we, you know, we we want to have Uh, knowledge liberated so that as many people as possible can can take part in an informed debate but of course the professions and the disciplines in universities mitigate against that oh no you're in this particular school you're in this particular department you know you have to have this body of knowledge you know these are the tablets that we brought down from our academic mountain for you to (laughs) to receive and you know uh, the whole examination process is 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 Mm. geared to that and it's only when people start to get to the level of writing dissertations. Even then that's contained, you know, but that idea of education as freedom is counterintuitive to education as training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. liberating the mind is entirely different to actually limiting the mind, yeah. you know, which is what training is yeah. about, the narrow perspective yeah. on whatever knowledge you need in order to do this particular job. Yeah, true.
1: Absolutely, I agree. Absolutely. It comes back to that cliche to bring another one in about, you know, knowledge being power, but knowledge is also the way to counter power, isn't it? And with all yeah. power comes yeah. this idea of resistance, wherever whether you are a student in the classroom thinking, Well, I can I have ideas on how to do this stuff, I'm mm-hmm. interested in this, and just because you tell me to use Harvard referencing doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to. Um and well, John, I always reference. Yeah, um,
0: uh, John Berger, the artist, used that notion when he talked about viewing art of ways of seeing that we all bring our prejudices our ideas our beliefs our cultures into looking at that piece of art Well, the world is exactly like that Mm -hmm. and you know from our point of view it's about liberating that process so that we identify and understand the different dynamics in multiple ways of seeing and by presenting that it opens us up to a much wider discourse a much richer way of communication that is cross-cultural Cross class, uh, cross gender—obviously, those issues are really, really significant and at the heart of what I would call critical analysis.
2: And perhaps I—I um, I, I, I know we were discussing this before we we came over. One of the things we wanted to draw attention to is um, people getting involved in social justice, mm. particularly if they are academics. I think, feel correct me if I'm wrong, because. I would be an early career researcher. I'm only starting to understand the limits of the freedom that academia is awarding me, but it's not necessarily easy to say, I am an activist as much as an academic. I am an activist using academic tools, if we have to be specific. Um, But I would encourage people who are doing research on issues of social justice to, first of all, look for ways to engage their research with, with um, people's movements. Um, so don't keep it confined to the ivory tower of your institution. Mm. Join the people that you're writing about, not only because they are the experts, they hold the knowledge that you're seeking, but because you can be useful to them. Uh, But also I would encourage people to um, feed their academic uh, thirst for knowledge and discussions and contributing to a field by actually being activists on the streets the same way Phil was years ago. And that... um, open the path towards academia the same way I would be at the moment. I'm not satisfied with just writing about resistance. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have to be part of the resistance as well in any way that I'm needed, not in a way that I think I should do it, but in a way that is useful to the people that I, I am writing for and with. Actually, we need to stop using the term I'm writing about disabled mm-hmm. people I'm writing with disabled people mm-hmm. they're writing yeah. I'm just recording and using fancy language and <laughs> that's basically what's happening
1: <laughs> well, we've talked a little bit about you know critical analysis and that's obviously one of the big skills in terms of providing an academic perspective but you both have mentioned tools and um, that you use to you know from pursue emancipation um pr- to pursue social justice and um to create the space for for voices and um to be heard. What particular tools, um, in terms of law students sitting out there who maybe haven't come across these tools yet and they are just can't wait till they get to <laughs> that stage in third year or whatever it is. Um, but in terms of specific tools, like, what is the most useful tool to you? And then, do you have a Particular thing that this tool has allowed you to do. So to bring it right back to legal skills, what is the um most useful tool for you in terms of doing your research? You mentioned interviews, Phil, and getting like how you do. How do you go about immersing yourself um in the situations? I mean, you didn't, have you I mean, have you been in prison? <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> yeah. not I'm not, no, yeah. not officially. Uh, <laughs> few people have wanted to keep me in prison. I can tell you, but you know, no. I mean, I've been in prison, going in prison yeah. since I was twenty three. Um, I think that the. It, it's not one single tool. I think that immersing yourself in a situation and trying to see it through the uh, experiences of others mm-hmm. is really important. You know That idea that um, if you... The, the, the tool that you're using, I think, if it's of anything, is, is critical thought. And critical thought doesn't come just from yourself. It comes from context. So you're looking at the circumstances and the context of people's lives, and trying to, as best you can, um, understand them from an internal view. And that internal view, you can't, you can't be that bereaved person. You can't be necessarily that prisoner. Mm-hmm. Although one of my one of my students did actually refuse to pay a parking fine so that she could experience prison <laughs> for herself um and i wouldn't recommend that to anybody but she she did two days in mm-hmm. in um in Hyde Bank wood but i mean the 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 issue of immersion mm-hmm. into communities into places for me is everything um but you're not doing that just from the decision that you want to uh, immerse yourself you're doing it from a position of pre-knowledge so you have thought through why it is you're doing it you've read You've understood the context of that environment. You know what a prison. You know, you've read the prison writings. You know you've read the view from below, as well as the academic analysis mm-hmm. of prisons or any other context. And then it's about being there. One of the the the, the phrases I use whenever I teach about this uh, about research methods is about being there, bearing witness, actually being in that place. Mm-hmm. You know that that is not something you. I can't describe, for people who have not been in prison, I can't describe the smell, the noise, the the lockdowns, the pain of confinement in strip cells for 23 hours a day. But I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen what it does to people. That creates a a notion and a feeling and emotion in you, which you have to contain. Mm -hmm. Containing emotion is absolutely Mm -hmm. crucial. But you're understanding, that's what I mean by the view from below. It's not a a, a visible, you know, it's not looking through your eyes. It's a view that forms in your mind about the experience in the context of all that you've read and all that you've developed as a researcher. And I think that I take that into all of my work, even working with children, uh, you know, in, in communities, where they're under threat, mm-hmm. um, working with very young children uh, and trying to get to understand the world as those young children see it. That to me is exactly the same process. So it's not that it's one tool, it's it's like a the development of a skill. And it's the skill of being a, an empathetic interviewer that is working from a knowledge base. And as Ivanka says, is aware of the power relations in which you're actually operating you know who controls the power of you know that determines the prisoner who controls the power that determines childhood who controls the power that determines the bereaved at hillsborough Mm -hmm. those issues are all part of of that process of developing what i regard as an alternative knowledge to the official discourse that surrounds us
2: Mm -hmm. i'll pick up on the on the last phrase you used because i think it describes it perfectly an alternative Uh, view on the official narrative Mm. Uh, and I'll give um, a a concrete example coming from my my PhD thesis um, to do with figures Mm. um, that the Department for Work and Pensions had to release on the number of people who have passed away shortly after being found fit to work, yet having a very serious disability. So um, the official narrative for many, for a for, for long time was, there is no such thing. You are nitpicking here. Yeah. There is no connection between death and benefit cuts. That doesn't exist. Then under pressure from below, as, as Phil says, pressure people power, people demanding answers. Um, the DWP released um, a heavily redacted uh, report with some statistics and some information on um, these internal reviews that they conducted, I think, in relation to 40 cases in, in England and Scotland. Now, this is the official narrative, but the personal, alternative, human, passionate, political, bitter, cynical, Non-politically correct narrative actually comes from the disability movement. So as a research researcher, I try my best to obviously refer to academic sources as much as necessary, but also feature the alternative papers, the alternative reports, the blogs, the um, social media outlets of disability activist groups, because they release the human story behind the suicides that result from benefits being cut from you knowing that you're going to starve from you knowing that there isn't social housing that is accessible Mm -hmm. to you Mm -hmm. from the knowledge that you are useless to this society now this is not this isn't an easy merge with academia and i'm not saying that i'm doing it particularly successfully but if i could highlight a tool that i use part of the critical thinking um, framework they feel Um, outlined. A particular example would be this. What is the other side saying? What is the alternative story about dry figures, about a mention on the Government UK webpage? What are the people saying? Why isn't this making frontline news? Why isn't there a popular media out there picking on these stories? Why aren't we all talking about them? We should all be talking about them. So this is, I hope, uh, uh, in a way, a practical example. I highlight alternative reports all the time. Yeah. Um, rep- reports written by NGOs, for example, or by um, activist groups. These will not be, um, what's the word, dry, not dry, just formal academic mm. sources. Yeah. But they are, this is where I think the expert knowledge actually lies. Because my research is about human rights, disability in the context of austerity, this is what I need to know.
1: This yeah. is what everyone, in my view, it needs comes to back know. to. Quite a lot of what I do in my own work, um, which like in uh, my in the migrant crisis in the EU and how the EU uses and rights narrative to manage that while not necessarily getting... Any more access to human rights and actually excludes quite a lot of people from for coming and claiming mm-hmm. their rights. One of the things I look at is the notion of solidarity and that the EU has its own discourse of what it does to solidarity. It's, so you know we give money and um sometimes and you know we'll maybe help out member states. We don't really care about helping out actual migrants, but we'll help mm-hmm. Italy because it's dealing with a lot of them and that's what we do because we're a group of member states. Um and a lot of it came out. You know the I whenever I was doing this and. I, what I'm thinking about in in terms of the skill that I would maybe think about is that none of this happens overnight. There's a whole like time. I mean, a whole career spent honing these skills and four years for (laughs) you and I currently. Um, but all this time of actually sitting and thinking that you don't get insight into anything by just, you know, it's not an opinion, you know, it's like sitting and thinking and weighing up evidence and trying to balance that. Um, and whenever I was in the process of doing all that, um, One of the things was, well, you could argue that, you know, the EU doesn't have a solidarity, and that there's no solidarity to be seen in terms of how it deals with the migrant crisis. But part of it is actually well, it does, but it's just not engaging with that narrative. And there is solidarity. There's you know border guards who are helping people mm-hmm. who are technically classed as you know part of the ex you know the establishment experts because they're wearing a uniform and you know whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they are people that are helping people out of water and they're giving people mm-hmm. food to eat. And there is a narrative of you know that I could have argued that yes, the EU constructs this really. Um exclusionary you know institutional thing about solid and you know solidarity in terms of rights isn't there but actually it is but it's just that we're not listening to that that you know we need to challenge how we actually understand solidarity in society and one of my students this year this um semester and i think we'll probably bring it around to end and on on this and see what you think about it um, he mentioned the reason he came to study law, and I think that you know that's something to engage with in terms of what the podcast is doing. The reason he came to study law is because he read a book called, I think it's Letters to Law Students, in case anybody wants to go look it up. <laughs> um and in that he was inspired because law apparently, according to this book, is the conversation about what we want our society to be like. And one of the things I just immediately came back to saying to him was like, but who's invited to be a part of that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he then suddenly you know had was like, Oh and thought, I really want to look into that now, you know, I want to, you know, and he's only starting out at his, you know, studies in law, but he had this kind of glimmer of, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I think that's something that's useful in terms of showing people how, well, maybe you haven't thought about things in a specific way before. And it's not providing any answer or any, you know, blueprint for the society, but it's just saying, well, maybe you need to have a consideration of that, how it could be done differently Mm. and how, you know, prison could be done differently, how punishment for crime could be done differently or how, you know, managing disability in society and ensuring people have access to funds and jobs and rights can be done differently mm. rather than through a benefit system based on points
0: yeah Yeah I mean, Any my final own, thoughts Well my own my own feeling is there's a lot in that um, to, to unpick but um, <laughs> I think that one of the issues from my point of view is developing the expertise that you need to have. In order to challenge that which is put in front of you, uh, either by your discipline uh, or by any any formal discourse, any professional discourse. My criticism of the law is that it's, um, it, it, it's in, in its professional, as a professional entity, it serves a very clear purpose within the society in which we live. And although there are aspects of criminal law that you can see are challenging, and some of my close friends or radical solicitors, um, some of whom are working on Grenfell Tower at this very moment, um, many of whom I worked with throughout Hillsborough. But the constraints of the law as a formal process, even in that work, uh, are are significant. So from my own point of view, it's being able to build an alternative discourse. Mm -hmm. I mean, examples of that are, are legion, but I mean, just from the Hillsborough work, for example, I can think of one one moment when I gained access to all of this information that we'd waited for for literally ages, and I still got it at home. It's about 200 pages of material uh, that came from one of the key players in, in the whole Hillsborough disaster, and all but about 15 lines are redacted. In other words, I ran off. I ran off all those pages for 15 lines none of which were of any relevance at all then on another day so that that frustration that legal process can actually become a barrier to justice you know was 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 delivered writ large with that example but on another day one of the researchers walked into my room with this photocopy of a handwritten page and said do you think this is of any importance and what it was was a handwritten page, written by a solicitor, actually, uh, for the police, where they'd noted down that every single person who had a blood alcohol level, recorded blood alcohol level, at Hillsborough, and they were arguing that alcohol played a part in the disaster, had had a criminal records check run on them, and there were their name, their address, the whole, the whole issue was there in front of you. Now, that process had gone unnoticed throughout the entire legal process until 21 years down the line, when one of my researchers actually said, do you think this is of interest? I said, oh my goodness, is it of interest? <laughs> wow, you know, because it actually revealed a, 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 an ideology, a political mentality that was prevalent not only with within the police at the time, but also within the legal teams advising them. So that those processes of, of investigative research, that's, I think if I was to end on one issue, it would be to say that research has the real potential for um, turning power uh, to our own, to, 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 you know, the, 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 the use of power to our own um, our own benefit through our understanding, through our knowledge and through the enhancement of that knowledge and I think challenging in-depth research challenging those issues is, is absolutely crucial but as with Hillsborough, sometimes it takes many years before mm-hmm. you can access the material mm-hmm. then analyse it, then present it and even then as I discovered this week weekend with some hate mail, even then there are people who won't believe what is at the end of their nose.
1: Mm. Any final thoughts,
2: Ivanka? My final thoughts are now focused on what to, to use the the words of that letters to P, to law students, I think Did it's letters it? to law students. Yeah, um, a conversation. Uh, what kind of a conversation are you having receiving or seeing hate mail? It just baffles the mind. My mind is baffled about the types of conversations that we seem to be uh, having To that student, I would say, read the Feminist Judgment Project about a great book on how we are not all invited (laughs) to participate Mm -hmm. in the conversation. and The conversation is already, before we even sit on the table, the conversation has been decided, the outcome has been decided. (sighs) And the constraints about this conversation, where the conversation can go, who can improvise, how they can improvise, um it has already been predetermined so um, the law human rights and all these conversations and discourses associated with it that we keep participating in are important and uh, again I would say uh, a lot of us are inspired by the work of uh, people like Hughes Creighton to to restructure the power relation to use our strategic position to influence um Uh, our environment, to our benefit. There are many years more to come. Um, Many ways, to go back to my more comradely uh, personality, the struggle continues forever. Uh, (laughs) But the point is to um, critically analyze even things like human rights and know that they carry their own constraints and that it takes critical analysis to use them as a tool for liberation and power as opposed to invisible prison of wrong freedom.
0: Well, I don't think I have many years to come. <laughs> but while the future is in your hands, Ivanka, I think yes. we're safe. Yes,
1: we do.
0: <laughs> Thank well, you both we'll for talk. joining <laughs> me
1: um, in today's conversation. And I'm sure there'll be many more of such interesting conversations that will occur. In this space that we've created with law pod um, and i look forward to listening to those and um, thanks very much for coming today it's a pleasure you. you have been listening to law an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at queen's university belfast this episode was produced by richard somerville and rachel colleen our theme music is by colonel chocolate and the justice triangle and we are funded by queen's law school and the queen's annual fund thanks to phil Scraton, rachel dixon and ivanka Antova for this episode You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Clean. This was LawPod.